Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life, a podcast for all you seekers in the world, seeking a new home, a new job, a new perspective, a new life. And for those of you who have already gotten started by moving to a new place or feel a little bit stuck because you're back in the old place, we're here to keep you company as you explore the world. And this show is free, but you know in reality that it's not free. We spend our time and our money every single week to bring it to you. And we do this hoping that you will also rise up and help keep the show going because you enjoy it, maybe even because you count on it. And just like you would pay for a painting, this is art too. So please, if you like the show, support it. Forgo a cup of coffee every month and commit to donating $5 a month. Write about the show on social media. Share it with your friends and family. Write us a good review. You have a chance, not just to listen, but to say, hey, I really like what you're doing here. Let me take you to dinner. You've heard me ask before. You've heard me tell you about the donate button at thebittersweetlife.net or about telling a friend. And so today I challenge you. If you love the show, take action. Help us keep it alive and help us keep it growing. Now on with the show. Welcome to New Orleans. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Caitlin Doty is a mortician and the host and creator of the YouTube video series Ask a Mortician. She's also the author of the New York Times bestseller Smoke Gets in Your Eyes. She runs a nonprofit funeral home in California called Undertaking LA, and she's the founder of the Order of the Good Death. But she joins us today to talk about her latest book, From Here to Eternity, Traveling the World to Find the Good Death. My co-host, Tiffany, couldn't be here for this conversation. I'm sure she regrets it, but thank you so much for being with us. Oh, yeah. Glad to be here. Where's Tiffany? Tiffany lives in Rome, so... Oh. Yes. I know. And actually... Her father just died last week. Oh, so maybe this wouldn't wasn't the episode she wanted to do. <laughs> Can't wait to get into all those that corpse talk with the mortician. Right. Although part of what we were talking about in last week's episode was the fact that she is so far away from where her father died. She lives in Rome, and he died in Idaho. That she's so far away from all of that end of his life those last few days that she feels like she's almost in complete denial that it even happened mm-hmm. like it's slowly sinking in because she hasn't been around for any of it and won't be around for I think she's going to a celebration of his life in March so she's not going to be around for any of it for a long period of time I hear a, a lot 
people, it's hard because you don't, I never want to advocate and say, you have to be there. You have to see the body. You have to sit with them while they're dying because that sets the precedent of if you're not able to do that because you live in Rome, for instance, that you failed somehow or, or you haven't been able to actually mourn or complete this task. But I will say that oftentimes I hear people who live internationally or weren't able to get to the bedside of someone they love who died really regretting it. And that doesn't mean they can't work through it, but, but there is this longing of not being able to get to the person who's dying and not being able to sit there with them and not being able to, to engage with them and just showing up when the body is already gone. And this person that, that you loved is now no longer there. And we are somehow sort of logical people. So we need a little bit of that evidence, right? Whether it's the body or, or the person at the hospital or, or something that tells us that they're not there anymore. And that physical visual element that, that we miss when we're not able to get there. And so I, I feel for her. Yeah. Is there any value in being able to pretend that it's not true? Uh, I would only say that there's value in that in short bursts around a really tragic death. So a mother losing her child tragically, and she's just trying to hold it together for the duration of the funeral, or these protective mechanisms we have when we're in a dangerous situation. I can see it not being a universal blanket statement to say that that denial never helps. But I happen to be of the opinion and the advocacy that that it's important to engage with our mortality often, frequently, often, (laughs) every day, and especially around the time of death in an honest way. Well, you've done so much travel around the world, which we'll get into a little bit more, looking at how people approach death. But since you're a person who lives in the United States, do you find that we in the United States are more heavily in denial about maybe our own mortality or even the mortality of others around us than others? Or are we, what are we? Like, where are we on the scope of, we keep our dead sort of far away from us, generally speaking, traditionally, but where are we emotionally? I find that, I find that we are more in denial about death than other cultures. There's often this, this argument of the UK versus the US. Traditionally, the UK There's a lot more cremation and they take the body away right away and cremate it. And even as even if you can come and see the body on the conveyor belt, the casket is still still closed. So unless you're there when someone dies, you're not really seeing that body ever again, which is the sort of stiff upper lip British way to look at it, really, or especially in England. But what about the U.S. where traditionally we've been known to out on display? with makeup and with flowers and with a theatrical presentation. But it's not the real dead body. It's a a waxen version of the dead body. So it's not, I don't know if I can tell you which one is better. They both smack of real denial to me. It's either, oh no, this, this dead body isn't here at all. Or it's, oh, this dead body is here. Isn't it exciting? It's in its outfit with its makeup. You know, and neither one is really truly engaging, I think, with the reality of, of the situation and the real dead body. So I'm not sure that really any, especially English speaking country is, is nailing it with the death 
awareness and acceptance at this current juncture. How did this happen that we became so detached? <laughs> well, I have a do we have 45 minutes? <laughs> What's the one minute cliff note version? The one minute version. Yeah. Okay. I think what happened is that we used to be a culture that death was everywhere. We killed our own animals. We died at home. We got sick at home. We kept the bodies at home after death. It was a it was a death is everywhere culture. And very, very quickly at the beginning of the 20th century, we went to a death is nowhere culture. Funeral homes took over, hospitals took over, slaughterhouses took over. And the only death we see now is in the media, whether a television show or a disaster around the world. That's the death we see. And death is much less tangibly real to us than it used to be. I feel like the media, almost everything seems like death if it's not something Donald Trump said. It is. Well, I mean, and most things Donald Trump say seem like death to a lot of people. Right. But yeah. it does seem like a lot of death. And I don't necessarily blame the media because the media is doing its thing, but we're not doing what we need to be doing on the ground to make sure that death is more natural and a part of our lives. So, for example, if there's a huge earthquake in, in Mexico, we should hear about that and learn about the people who died and engaged with that. Or if there's a shooting in Las Vegas, we should engage with that and learn about it. It's not the media's fault that that's being shared, but when that's your only access to death and when mom dies, you never even see her body or have anything to do with the funeral, that's much a much bigger problem than the media, in my personal opinion. Do you think that that separation that we hear about mass shootings, say, and then we don't spend time with our dead mother, is that what creates so much anxiety about death in our country? Because I feel like people are, including myself often, are very anxious about it. I sure think so. And the, the paradox here is that the more that you get interested in death and expose yourself to death, the more that it becomes a less threatening thing, a more relaxing thing. So the way that I look at death is yes, there's, of course, there's, I still am anxious about my own death. I don't want to die. I don't want my parents to die or my partner to die. That sounds awful. Mm -hmm. but I think of death as a fascinating concept, cultural concept. I think about it in terms of history and anthropology and ritual and art. And it allows me to really be interested in death and morbid things. So I don't have this constant low grade anxiety about it because so often when I'm facing it, I'm facing it in this sort of, hey, how cool, how interesting, I'm glad you're here, death, as opposed to this thing that's busting in on my otherwise tranquil denial and, and poking a hole in, in how I feel about myself and the world around me. Yeah, it's somehow dividing, it's dividing your own anxiety about the fact that one day you will not be here into like a cultural interest. Were you always like that? Was it always a, a topic in general that you were really interested in? It was. Um, I don't know if I would totally say interested. I was I was pretty obsessed when I was younger. I was really, really terrified that I was going to die and my parents were going to die when I was younger. And as I said, I, I found that being interested in it helps a lot. Not being afraid of it, but being interested is is a better way to to engage with it. And I don't recommend anyone be like me necessarily. You know, my whole life is this advocacy and this is my job and it's my interest. 
and it's my travels and it's, it's everything that I do. So I don't think that you have to become as interested in death as I am to be, to be successfully helped with this. But I do think that just reading some books, visiting some cemeteries, going to some interesting death destinations, destinations, wherever you are in the world can help you feel more connected to death and, and see yourself as a, in this universal fabric of, you know, millions and millions and billions of people who have who have died throughout human history. It's so interesting, because when you're talking about your youth and growing up, I feel like my story was exactly the same way. My mother would tell you that as a child, I was so interested in death that if I found a dead maggot covered squirrel, I would call her from the kitchen and say, I have to show you the most amazing thing, you know, or I'd bury birds in the garden and dig them back up again, hoping they were little skeletons. But but then as I got older, and I feel like I experienced the same thing as you, where I just started to get freaked out about the fact that I was going to die and, and that people that I loved were going to die. Something most people don't know about me is I did this brief, I don't know if you'd call it an internship, it's almost like a, a journalistic experiment working for a funeral home, which took me over a year to get into. And part of that was just because I felt like if I didn't see it, if I didn't ever face it head on, I was just going to be totally freaked out by it forever. Yeah, good for you. Good for you for doing that. That's a way to get at it. And it breaks my heart that so many kids come to my events and they ask these perfectly morbid questions about the dead body and they're so thrilled with whatever the gross, interesting answer is. And they have this innocence to their morbidity. You know, <laughs> they're they're so they're just in it and they're there and they want to know about why disemboweling smells like pineapple or, you know, whatever they have in their head. And it's so fun to talk to them. And then you get to them when they're a teenager or where they're, where they're in their twenties and they're just racked with anxiety about death. It's always the question of what happened and that culture got to them. Our particular culture got to them and said, no, 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 don't be interested in those things don't engage in that way. That's morbid. That's weird. That's wrong. And we're creating anxious adults because we're not letting our kids follow their natural curiosity and inclination. And you were someone who was lucky enough to be able to in later in life, at least go in there and, and follow your inclination. What kind of stuff did you see when you were doing this? It was interesting because I heard some interview with you, or maybe you write about it in the book. I can't remember, but you talking about how you never forget the first the first body or the first couple bodies. And I think that that's true. So, I mean, I went from, I wasn't there that many days. The first day I had a man and a woman, one of whom I helped embalm, the other of whom I mainly helped dress and prevent leakage, as you know about all that. In fact, there's this funny moment where the mortician that I was working with looks up at me and he says, do you think your friends have any idea what you're doing right now? And I said, what, diapering a corpse? Probably not. You know, <laughs> this would be the last thing they would think of. But so uh, the first day was just those two things. And, and obviously, like other people just sort of laid out. But I mainly remember working with those two particular individuals. And then on later days, there was everything from a suicide to, you know, most of the people were elderly, though. I would never really experience anything like a somebody extremely young or anything like that. But they tried to put me in all sorts of different situations. Well, that's that's lucky. There are so many people who 
would love to be in your shoes. And I, I get it. I working at the first crematory I ever worked at, which is what the first book I wrote was about, was the coolest year of my life. It was hard. It was emotionally incredibly difficult. And I was 22 and 23, which is an emotional age anyway. But seeing all of those different bodies and all the different situations and all the different living people with their interpersonal problems that came along with the dead bodies, it was just so interesting to me. And, you know, I still, I own a funeral home now, so I still have that to a certain extent, but I don't know that I'll ever get back that completely wide-eyed wonder that I had that first year. And even, I guess, traveling around the world kind of helped that a little bit and seeing death around the world because I could see completely new customs and it brought back a little little of that wonder. But yeah, yeah, I, I am glad that you got to do that. And I think if, if I could set up everyone with an internship at a funeral home, I would do it. Yeah, the actual, the first thing I did there was um, witness a cremation. That was the first moment. That was the first day. And I, uh, up to that point, had never seen a dead body before. And I think that that's not unusual in our culture. Like, I went from seeing none to seven or something, like, in right. an instant. Yeah, well, that's something else I think I would say about our weird relationship with bodies in American culture is when I was working in funeral homes, or even today, as I work in funeral homes, I feel like I have way too many corpses, and other people don't have any. Right. You know, there's an imbalance of corpses. Like, everyone should have an occasional corpse in their life. You know, not a random corpse, but the corpse of someone that they love. And they should they should be able to be with that person, and help with the funeral, and feel like they're involved, and engage with their grief. It shouldn't be me a young woman alone with all of these dead bodies, because I don't know them. I didn't know them, and I don't know their stories. And I'm respectful with them. But is that really the best that we can do as a death system is have all the corpses hidden behind the scenes with one person? Yeah, you do remember the very first person you ever worked with, don't you sort of not remember them, but you know, remember who it was. Yeah, yeah, I think so. There was definitely um, the, the first book opens with a girl always remembers the first corpse she ever shaves. <laughs> right. Hey, I shaved one of these corpses too. So yeah, I get you. That's a whole other weird experience too. <laughs> you know, barber to the dead. Um, yeah, I remember, I remember that. And I remember, I remember the first couple of bodies just being so unsettling to me not freaky or spooky but just unsettling so uncanny because it was it's it's obviously a person and these were unembalmed bodies it's obviously a person but they're so still and they're so silent that you almost feel like you can't trust them you know what are you up to what's going to happen are you going to wake up at any second because they look like real people and they are real people they're just the light has gone out and the brain has stopped functioning, and the breathing has stopped happening, and the blood has stopped circulating. But other than that, they, they are the shell of a person. And it's, it, it is unsettling just because I wasn't used to it at all. And even today, when I walk into a room with a dead body, there's still an unsettling feeling. But it's, it's really powerful, and it's one that I enjoy because it's, it's a good reminder that someday I will be completely still as well. Hmm. 
there's just so many places I want to go and we don't have enough time. I was thinking that uh, back to my own experience with one of these women that I worked with, when you work with a dead body in a traditional sense in America, you're with them for quite some time. So it's almost like you know them in and out, but then you know absolutely nothing about them. You know, so it's this sort of weird, you know everything about their body, but you know nothing else except for what you glean from the family. And I just always found that that was such an interesting experience. Well, yeah, and it's also, the question becomes, what do we value about death and ritual in our culture? So, for example, if there's a woman who's 84 years old and she died of pancreatic cancer, and there I am standing with her as she's about to be put into the cremation chamber or to be put in the ground for burial, and I'm the only one there, what do we really believe? Do we believe that that's sad? And that because I didn't know her, her family should be there? Or do we believe that she actually is a literal shell and that it doesn't matter and she's not there, she doesn't care, her family doesn't care if they're there or not, they're mourning her on their own time in their own memorial ceremony and their body doesn't mean that much. I would go towards the former. I really think that it, that it matters if a person is there with people, surrounded by people that they love. And I think that that's been a human instinct for a long time and that it's been taken away by the American funeral industry. And I'm not telling anyone how they have to do it, but people who do choose to sit with the bodies of the people that they love have a really positive experience overall. Yeah. So I know you talk about it a lot. There's this assumption, and even when I... I did my stint with the funeral industry in the late 90s. So it stands to reason that things have changed a bit. But there was even the assumption back then that from a law perspective, at least in Washington state, it was required that the person either be refrigerated or embalmed within 24 hours. And people just thought that that was the law. And I don't know who would come down and punish you if you didn't do something like that, because actually the first guy I embalmed had been at his home for four days, and the mortician I was working with did nothing but complain about how difficult it was to embalm him because he'd been sitting at home for four days. Right. But is there these strict laws where people must do this and that, or is that just, you know, us being rule followers? So what's what's interesting is that the 24-hour rule, and it, and it varies state. Sometimes it's 48 hours. Sometimes it's not on the books at all. But what you're going to find is that refrigeration means really anything. And the laws traditionally are much stricter for the actual funeral homes than they are for the families. So for a family, refrigeration can mean put some ice packs under them. Done. Keep them as long as you want you know, 24 hour rule no longer applies. However, if a body comes into my funeral home, I can't just leave the body with some ice packs out in my foyer. It has to either be, well, we don't offer embalming usually, but it, it has to go into our refrigeration because refrigeration drastically slows down any decomposition that might happen. And that's a law that funeral homes should have to follow. I should be able to leave the body in my foyer. But a family should be able to do whatever they want with the body. And the same thing goes actually for transporting the body. In California, for example, the vehicles that we use to pick up and transport dead bodies to our funeral home 
have to be a certain, have to be covered in a certain way, have to have certain equipment. But a family, you can put that body in the back of the pickup truck as long as it's covered and bring it around. So families actually have far more power to do what they want than the funeral home does, and rightly so. Your book jumps from country to country to country of you going and seeing different traditions throughout the whole world. Obviously, we can't talk about all of them, and people should just read the book anyway, uh, From Here to Eternity. I really enjoyed it, although occasionally difficult to read over dinner, which is when I often read. Um, I will say that uh, your Colorado chapter, which is about the open pyre cremation, which I want you to describe. I was eating, I was eating a rack of lamb while reading that, and I got to say, a little bit too close of a connection. That almost made me a, a vegetarian right there on the spot. Somebody was actually saying recently, which I, which I love this example, that we have meat that we keep in our freezer and that we defrost and that we, you know, we, we are totally fine with moving it all around. But when it becomes a dead human body, somehow it's this, it's this precious thing that a family can't keep at home and can't have control over. Um, but it's the same meat as, you know, I'm not saying that you're a cannibal by having rack of lamb, but right. it's the same. It's all animal flesh. I'm animal flesh. You're animal flesh. The lamb is animal flesh, you know, and, and why do we have, I guess, different ideas. I know why. It's because we don't like to think of ourselves as animals in general. No. Well, and I think it's also interesting that we think of a, of a dead human as being inherently dangerous, like it's somehow toxic. That is one of the messages that you hear in the culture, too. Like exactly. One of the reasons why you can't keep it is what? It's going to explode? No, right. but it's somehow extremely dangerous. Yeah, again, you would never, if you were thawing out some steaks on your counter, you would never think that they were horrifically dangerous to you and your family, yet your grandmother who died an hour ago is somehow going to infect everyone? Like, what? What? No, he's fine. If it was chicken, maybe. No, yeah, yes. <laughs> My next book is called Grandma Won't Give You Salmonella. Right, right. So can you explain a little bit about what they were doing in Colorado? I thought from uh, United States being so paranoid about this kind of stuff. I thought your chapter about Colorado was really interesting. Yeah, I tried. I mean, it's it's all death all around the world, but I tried to feature a couple places in the U.S. too that were doing really interesting out-of-the-box things just to show that it's cool and it's possible to think outside the box. And it's this town in Colorado that's very, very small, only about, I think about 1,400 people in the surrounding area. And what they have done is they have essentially taken over the death care of their town and they have a nonprofit and for only $500, which is so much less than you could ever get anything for in the funeral industry. When someone dies, they'll come to the house and sit with the family and help the family wash the body and prepare the body and put the cooling board ice packs under the body. And then they'll arrange a cremation and this usually takes two or three days to, to put in motion and have people come in from out of town. And then at dawn, they will escort the body or the family will escort the body up to the only public open air cremation pyre in the Western world and set the body, set the shroud alight under the, the dawn sky in Colorado. And it's just epic and something that people end up wanting to be very much involved in because it's it's a beautiful ceremony and a beautiful ritual even if you're not necessarily a religious or spiritual person it when you're there it, it feels like you are in that moment mm, that's so interesting 
my husband also read your book and he really really was fascinated with the idea of what they were doing in japan and i know that japan's a little bit more corporate like we are but he loved the buddha room can you explain what that was yeah my japan's my i don't know if my i don't want to pick favorites but japan i think is the one that the u.s could most directly benefit from and learn from because not only are they really okay with being with the dead body and they're encouraged to sit with the dead body, but they also are so amenable to innovation in cemeteries and in the funeral industry, which the U S has, has not been historically. And one of the places that I went was this columbarium that's on the property of this very charming old Buddhist temple. So it feels like you've stepped back into time when you go into the Buddhist temple, but there's a building to the side where they store their cremated remains of the people who were there who have died. And you go in and it's, it's a 360 degree kind of hexagonal room. And at the front, say you had a mom with her ashes there, you would show up to visit her with a tap card or a key card, like you would use for a subway and you would tap it at the front entrance and it would boop, boop, boop. And 360 degrees of Buddhas, crystal Buddhas in little squares start glowing, except for one which glows a different white color, and that's your mother's Buddha with her ashes and bones behind it. So you don't have to find her and squint and find her name. You can just walk up to this single glowing Buddha in 360 degrees of Technicolor Buddhas and find your mom and light incense and, and hang out. And they also have, the Buddhas can do, they were programming, they were programmed by a light designer. So they can do an autumn scene with falling leaves and they can do a shooting star scene where a white light jumps from Buddha to Buddha, like a shooting star. It was just cool. I don't know if it's because I really like death and I'm interested in these spaces, but it felt really innovative and really just cool to me. Yeah, I mean, it has sort of this special quality where it's almost like the person that you're going to visit lights up when you come in the room. It's almost like welcome. And the thing too is that the demographics in Japan are such that they're not having enough children <laughs> to replace the elderly people who are dying. So they have this, this graying market where people in their 80s and 90s are taking care of people in their hundreds um, or who are over a hundred. And there's a lot of people who are dying that don't have people to come to their graves to light incense and, and worship and bring flowers and pray. And that's really, really important to, to many people in, in the culture. So what this kind of columbarium allows for is the monk who runs it, who's this innovative, you know, incredible like kindred spirit, type man, he comes in in the morning and he punches in the date and the Buddhas start to glow of the people who died that day. And he opens the morning by praying for them. So even if there aren't children or there aren't relatives to come pray for them, you've kind of joined this community when you choose to have your ashes buried there. Yeah, it's so great. So I want to ask you about a couple more, but after doing this, all these trips and seeing all of these traditions that people have, does it make you wish that you live somewhere else? Oh, that's a great question. No one's asked me that. It doesn't make me wish I lived somewhere else because my whole life is dedicated to 
reforming the American funeral industry and offering people new options here. So I think what I was so excited about on all these travels is that I left with the thesis that, hey, I, you know, in other countries, I bet that they have a more open relationship with death. I bet they have spaces that are much more well-designed to really support people in their grief and in their mourning and that we have a lot to learn from them. And I found exactly that and even more and even things I didn't expect. Seeing other places only makes me more dedicated to offering other options to people in the United States. So given all the various experiences you have in this book, is there are there certain things that you brought back with you that stuck with you about, I don't know whether or not it's like you can immediately apply it to the United States or I don't know, something that kind of resonated with you that when you think back on all these adventures stands out? I think what resonated with me most is the idea that we need better spaces hmm. in the U.S. Because what I hear again and again, especially from millennials, people, people my age, is that they go to a funeral at a funeral home and they see the embalmed body and it's just a negative experience for them. They don't like it. It's not resonating with them. They feel awkward. The body in its embalmed state creeps them out. They don't like the architecture. They feel like they're being kind of moved in and out really quickly, like their cattle being moved along to see this corpse. And just there's a lot of things that that make them say, oh, maybe I'll just have a cremation when dad dies, because this is not a thing that I want to do uh, anymore. And when I went to these, all of these places, even the places in the, in the U.S. that were different, there's this sense of going to a place for death that holds you in and that's truly comforting. In Colorado, in the pyre that I talked about, it's this circle of wood or bamboo walls that, that go around the pyre that make you feel like you're, you're held in and safe under this big dome of blue sky. In Japan, the columbarium is this, is this wall of blue light that holds you in. In Mexico, at the cemetery for Day of the Dead, there are these candles and music and flowers and the walls of the cemetery that, that hold you in. And all of these places, there's just this feeling of profundity and comfort and like it's safe to have profound emotions in these places, whether it's profound grief, profound happiness, profound melancholy, whatever direction you plan on going or need to go, you can. Whereas the American funeral home, I think is missing the mark and isn't offering people that kind of profound, almost ritualistic experience that these other places are. And we have to think about our spaces and we have to think about how we're doing things. And if you're redesigning your funeral home, what are you doing to make it more like that? What are you doing to make your crematory more welcoming and safer for people? What are you doing to, to make sure people feel like they can walk up to the body and touch its hand and cut a lock of its hair? What are, what are you doing to facilitate that? And and that's the thing that, that needs to happen. And not to mention the modern day graveyard which is flat so that the mowers can go over it um, yeah i think what part of part of what people love in in visiting europe or even visiting new orleans where i am right now is that we have these 
graveyards that are kind of big and epic. There are generations and generations of the same family buried in a very tall visual tombs that have presence to them. Yeah. It becomes an environment in itself, like a, not a park, but like a statuarium or something like that. It does. Yeah. And that's, I, I love an old cemetery and we really have the, the West coast and specifically Los Angeles to thank for those flat headstones. Yeah. Thanks You're a lot, Los Angeles. The world. I also, I feel like part of my work is to like, you know, bring something positive out of Los Angeles. But uh, as I was saying, I had uh, was just in Mount Auburn Cemetery, and that's one of the oldest rural cemeteries established in the United States, or the oldest, really. And they had, we drove by on the golf cart past this section that they said, oh, you'll recognize this. This is our West Coast-style section with flat headstones. And it's in this beautiful old cemetery with all these monuments. And it was like, why would you put this section in here? <laughs> this big, beautiful, old, you know, New England cemetery, and you put LA-style flat headstones around the lake? Like, why are you doing this? But I guess some people like them. Uh, they're not my thing. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about one other place, because we could go on and on forever. Which of all of the places that you write about in this book, which one would you want to share to entice the people to pick it up? Ooh, That's a hard question. I know which one's my favorites would be, but um, you have to talk about this book all the time. So I would like to hear which one you want to talk about. Tell me a little bit about your listeners. What are they into? You know, let's let's make let's make like a love match with them. Like let's do an OK Cupid algorithm. Okay. With that book. So I think our listeners in general are they're mainly expats or people who are trying to um, get up the courage to make a change in their life, quit their job, move somewhere new. Mm -hmm. They are also uh, repats, which means they have been abroad for a while. They moved home. They probably are feeling slightly displaced and a little awkward about where they are and what they should be doing next. Um, that's sort of the role I've been in much of this time. But I think more than anything, curious seeking types they're trying to find the place where they can be where that feels like their most authentic self you know they're trying to find find adventure or where they belong and that said also they because they often displace themselves for so long they sometimes lose any sense of home like they don't right. belong in france anymore and they don't belong in the united states necessarily but they're floating mm. between the two, that sort of thing. Okay. All right. Given that, I would like to tell them about the Nyatitas of Bolivia. Okay. And the reason I choose that is because in Bolivia, there is an indigenous group that has carried on this tradition of turning skulls, not necessarily members of their family, but skulls that they find in, in cemeteries or architectural, not architectural. Um, what, what site am I looking for? Oh, archaeological. Um, archaeological. Oh, my. I lost my mind temporarily. <laughs> <laughs> Sexual sites. It's where, you know, you build a house. Um, anyway. Uh, yes. So those sort of sites. And they have skulls or mummified heads that mostly women bring into their home. And there are certain women and they become nyatitas. And so a, a nyatita is always a skull or a mummified head, but not all skulls are powerful nyatitas. So you have to be a special skull to be a nyatita. Mm. And there are some women who have whole walls of skulls in their house. 
And people come to be devotees of these skulls. They come for advice on love or money or protection or schooling issues. And what became so fascinating about this is that this is a, this is a very, very Catholic area. But these were people who weren't finding an exact home with their priest or with the Catholic Church or just felt like they should be doing more for themselves. And so they were accessing the beyond through these skulls. And so it was, in a way, it struck me as almost a feminist act, is these women saying, we don't need a male priest to be our conduit to to the afterlife or to the beyond. We have these skulls that we can make offerings to and tell our problems. And the skulls had certain specialties. There's one amazing mummified head named Sandra, whose specialty was business, uh, that was really cool. And so there's just this, this sense that they're bypassing the traditional patriarchal systems to be able to have direct access to the divine and to the beyond. I was so moved by that. And it's, it's such a cool thing. And the skulls are just, they wear, they have flower crowns and some of them wear beanies and some of them smoke cigarettes, lit cigarettes burn down in their mouth. It's a fascinating thing to see. And a fast, even more fascinating when you, when you really begin to understand what's going on. It's sort of plays into that thing that you don't see in the United States so much, but you do see if you tend to travel around the world is that people don't necessarily leave the dead buried. Like they often use the skulls for decorative purposes. In Rome, you've probably gone to that place with the Capuchin monks where they created an entire like diorama made of the bones of people. Have you been there? You should really go see that if you haven't. I have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I would also, if you're in Italy, I would also highly recommend Naples. They they have more, there's more cool death stuff in Naples than I would put it up against almost any other city in the world. Yeah. See, so, I mean, well, what do you make of that? That sort of idea of, I mean, there's other places in Italy too, where they've just cleaned out the catacombs because people were stealing too much, oh, too many bones. Nobody treats the dead with more kid gloves and with more preciousness than the United States. No. <laughs> when people, even from Europe, even from, you know, places that we can, you know, Berlin and, you know, Paris and places that we consider these cosmopolitan cities, when they hear about the fact that Americans consider their graves to be their special graves forever and ever, and don't you ever touch it, they think that's bonkers. Because you don't get your special grave forever. You get your grave for whatever amount of time or however long your family can pay for it. And then you get removed, your bones get removed and you get charneled. You get kept in a, in a more communal place. And when I was in Spain, I was able to, and this big, beautiful cemetery that doesn't look very different than an American cemetery. They do exactly that. And I was taken up to the top of the hill and, and looked beneath the pothole covers, manhole covers. And in this grassy hill, there was thousands of sets of, of bones and cremated remains because you only get your grave for a certain amount of time. Hmm. For Americans, they that freaks them out and they can't believe it. But that's that's the rest of the world, man. That's how it's going. That's what goes on. So I'm down in New Orleans. And you said you knew a little bit about New Orleans and how it feels about death. So I feel like you got to tell us that before we leave. 
Sure. Well, New Orleans has always been the shining light of American death culture, really. It has the jazz funerals. It has this, you know, incredible, uh, the, the men who dress as skeletons and who go around and bang pots and pans and remind people of their mortality. You know, it has this rich death culture to begin with. But the thing that I find most interesting about New Orleans is this new type of extreme embalming that's been happening there. So someone will die and these funeral homes develop specialized techniques where they embalm the body so much that they put them in a sitting position. So it'll be someone having a martini or sitting on their barca lounger or riding their motorcycle in full gear, except it will be their embalmed body. Wow. And this has been, you know, this always gets coverage when it happens. And for me, I almost appreciate this as an art form, the way that I don't appreciate normal embalming that happens at your everyday American funeral home. Because that embalming, I don't think the family really knows why they're, why embalming is happening. And I don't think that oftentimes the funeral home really tells them why embalming is happening or that it's not for their safety or that it's not totally necessary. I think in this case, the family knows exactly what they're getting into. At the point that you want your mom propped up in a chair with a feather boa and a martini welcoming her guests to her own wake, you know why you chose embalming. You know why you chose this elaborate preservation and mummification of, of your mom. You, you know why you did that. And so it has this meaning to it that I'm almost... Uh, here for in a way that I'm not with a typical American embalming. And so that's, that's my favorite part right now about what's going on in New Orleans. Yeah, well, and at least some of the people that I've met here have told me that because New Orleans tends to be a more dangerous city and because not just for the crime, but also for the weather, especially <laughs> following Hurricane Katrina, it has this sort of like, well, it could happen at any time. Exactly. You might as well have a good time while you're here. Exactly. And it, and it seems to have always had, but but obviously, especially now, it's heightened after Trina, and it's almost made New Orleans even more New Orleans, from my understanding, as, as far as their relationship with, with the fleetingness of life and the possibility of death happening at any time. Okay, so I want to end with maybe a question that will be hard, but maybe you already know the answer, because you seem like you're on a mission of some kind, so... I came across a Nina Simone quote the other night. I was watching old Nina Simone videos because I love her. And she was in the middle of a concert and she said uh, this quote, which I wrote down. She said, when I die, my people, when I go, I'm going to know that I left something for them to build on. And that is my reward. And I was wondering uh, if you have, if you think about that sort of thing, since you think about your own death enough, probably not all the time, but enough. Do you have sort of that mission of like what you hope to leave behind? Yeah, no, that, that's a great question. And I do, I think sometimes the, the fear that I have about dying is that I haven't done enough to get people to accept their deaths. So it's a kind of vicious irony where I'm like, oh, no, I can't die. I have too much death acceptance to promote. Like, wait a second, that's not right. I, I do want to leave that legacy behind. And the other legacy that I want to live that I want to leave is telling people that they can be that person in their community, whether their community is an expat community 
or a, a literal physical community, a religious community, LGBT community, whatever your community is, you can be that person in your community that knows the laws, knows how to talk to a funeral director, knows how to just sit and listen when a death has occurred for someone else. And you can be that person in your community and you'll be a valuable member of your community if you're able to, to take on that role. We need a lot more of those because it used to be older people and wise people in our communities, and that's not available to us in the same way anymore. And we need to bring that back. The book is titled From Here to Eternity, Traveling the World to Find the Good Death. I'll put links at our website, too, if you have trouble finding anything, uh, thebittersweetlife.net. And Caitlin, thank you so much for taking the time and being with us today. Of course. It's great to be here. This is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Thanks to the Dapper Dandies in New Orleans for the music clip in our opening. And a big welcome to our new, and first, intern, Estrella Gomez, who just moved back to Rome from Charleston, South Carolina. Check her out at her blog, lacasablaga.com. And remember, if you love the show, we're counting on you to take action. More than anything, independent artists like us, and independent art like this show, need people who love it to support it. If that's you, and I am looking at you, I thank you in advance. And if you do take action, let us know what you did. We're on Facebook and Instagram at the Bittersweet Life Podcast, and on Twitter at Bittersweet Pod. And of course, you can always email us at bittersweetlife at mail.com. Talk to you next week. Bye. <laughs>